This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hello, and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. It's been over a month since I released an episode, and that was not my plan nor my intention, but sometimes life intervenes. Just shy of a month ago, I had surgery to repair a lifelong issue with my ear, a ruptured eardrum, as well as some other things, and the recovery took much longer than I expected. It required me to slow down. I wrote about this over on my newsletter, the Post-Evangelical Post, but I want to share a couple of things that I learned here, too, before we get back to this re-released episode with Pete Holmes that I recorded in 2019. The first thing is this. Healing happens in its own time, but it requires us to make the space to do it. I didn't get this fixed for any number of reasons. Fear, laziness, financial concern, indifference. I didn't do it until other issues, in my case, uh, worsening tinnitus, really forced me to. I saw the first ENT that I, in this whole journey last summer, who then referred me to a more qualified specialist, and I still didn't get it fixed until this winter. And now that I've started down this path, I wonder why I didn't do it sooner. The second thing is, healing is its own form of discovery. In addition to the eardrum that I knew about, I had some other issues in my ear that made it prone to being chronically infected and, and other things I'll spare the audience. This contributed perhaps even more to all of the different challenges I had as a child and as an adult with, with this long outstanding issue. If I had known this in the past, I had absolutely forgotten it. But even now, uh, a, a month or so on, I feel as if my hearing is already changing. And the tinnitus is still there, and maybe it'll stay as an unrelated issue, and perhaps it'll fade, I'm not sure. It's going to be an, another several months before I know for sure. But I'm hopeful that this surgery will have been successful. Nonetheless, I don't think there's a singular way to hear or to heal. I only know that healing takes time and reori reorients our sense of time and requires our attention. Even as the world around us rushes to return to normal, so to speak. The lessons of the past few years to, at the very least, expect the unexpected. Well, the unexpected can still find you and force you to reorient, reorient yourself and slow down yet again. As someone who's been making regular content for almost six years, largely on my own, I tend to feel guilty when my output drops and I make interstitial content like this. I'm plagued by nagging thoughts common to any sort of indie web creator. What am I losing out on? Should I be building more momentum, gaining more followers, earning more revenue, etc., etc., etc.? What are you supposed to do when Big L Life intervenes and demands your attention? 
That's where the economics of the internet, built on monetizing attention and extracting value from engagement, run counter to more basic human needs to feel solid and whole. In my mind, I'm thinking of the Buddhist notion of solidity as presented by teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, which is very different than than the primarily disembodied experience we have when we're online. By and large, healing isn't done in public, and by and large, when we think of being online, we think of public spaces. And it should be normal and acceptable for public creators and any individual who contributes to the networked publics of social media to sometimes take time away. I hope that by talking about it this way, I can contribute to that normalizing. For what it's worth, I think that my desire to extract an object lesson from all of this experience provides pretty strong anecdotal proof that this is the only world in the multiverse in which I'm not a pastor. Meanwhile, even though I've been slow to publish, I've still been collecting interviews. I have six that are waiting to be edited. I've been working on a book, writing newsletters, working full-time, parenting, and more. This work means a lot to me, and that's why I take my time to do it. If you find it meaningful, please consider supporting my work via Substack over at postevangelicalpost.com. This show, Exvangelical, is a production of the Postevangelical Post, a publication about belief, technology, and society, with a focus on white evangelical influence in American society. Much of this audio essay appeared as an entry there, which I'll link in the show notes. In addition to Exvangelical, I also have a tech series called Shaped by Tools and a book series called The Good Books. And you can subscribe to my newsletter for free, and there are also paid tiers available at $4, 6 or $8 a month. Supporters receive ad-free podcast feeds to Exvangelical and Powers and Principalities, as well as subscriber-only content and Discord access. I donate 25% of net revenue to organizations that serve populations harmed by white evangelicalism, including Tory Douglas's White Homework and the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. While exvangelical and deconstruction content is certainly being widely discussed right now, bear in mind that this work is largely self-funded and is pushing back against evangelical entities like the Gospel Coalition that count their annual revenue in the millions. Your support will allow me to continue my work. You can learn more about that over at postevangelicalpost.com. You can see that in the show notes. All right. Let's get into this interview that I did with Pete Holmes back in 2019. I will be back with new episodes very soon. Like As I mentioned, I've got a half dozen that just need uh, some editing love, and then we'll be ready for you to listen to. All right, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. It's been a while. I'm glad to be back. I've got a really wonderful episode for you today because my guest this week is Pete Holmes. Now, if you're listening to this show, odds are you know who Pete is already. He's an actor, comedian, and author who's talked about his evangelical upbringing and spiritual path throughout all of his work. That includes his stand-up, his podcast, You Made It Weird, his HBO show, Crashing, and most recently, his memoir, Comedy Sex God. I was really, really thankful to be able to spend just a little bit of time with Pete talking about his experiences growing up evangelical and then moving on and exploring things relative to atheism and Ramdas and all across the board, all these things of, of 
just exploring the world of spirituality in a much broader and more open way. And I would have to say that if I think of, of one thing that really draws people to Pete, it is that openness, that sense of wonder and rapture, not in the Jesus take me away rapture, but just of being enraptured, um, that people just are attracted to. And it's really wonderful to have someone out there like Pete who has the audience he does and who talks about these things through comedy um, that is just very, very uh, relatable. And I'm really, really happy to share this conversation with you. As always, there are a few different ways you can support the show. First, you can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash pod. You can also rate and review the show over on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. And finally, you can just let other people know about the show. Yeah, let other people know if this is the first time you've heard the show. Check out the back catalog, listen to other stories of folks who've left evangelicalism. And if this is a resource that helps you, then please check out other episodes and let other people know about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at exvangelicalpod. And you can join the Facebook group that now has over 5,000 members over at facebook.com slash groups slash exvangelical. And finally, a very big thank you to Jake Lewis for producing this episode. Thank you very much, Jake. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is the author, actor, and comedian Pete Holmes. You know him from his stand-up, The Pete Holmes Show, and the HBO show Crashing. He's also the author of the wonderful new book, Comedy Sex God. Pete, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks very much for coming on, and I really appreciate it. I'm really thrilled to get to talk to you. Um, a few years ago when I was starting this show, actually, <laughs> I was listening to yours, and you were talking to Kenya Barris and you actually said like throughout that conversation, you're like, I wouldn't necessarily call myself an ex-Christian as much as an ex-evangelical. <laughs> and so, oh, like, wow. <laughs> so when I heard that and I like just started the show, like within a couple within a few weeks and heard that it was just really encouraging. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I it's funny. I, I, I think you have a great title and I think at, I'm, I might be misremembering, but I think at some point. I, I had all these different ideas for titles for my book, and mm-hmm. one of them was recovering, recovering evangelical or something. But it all seemed I, I love the name for your show. This is gonna, but for my book, it sounded too negative. Yeah, yeah. I love I love the title for a podcast, right? Um, especially because you get it, you can hear it, you get yeah. the tone of it. It's sort of but, punny. Um, it's sort of punny, like a dad joke, you know. <laughs> no, I like it. That's why I like yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It's exvangelical. It's it, it's perfect. It's a really good title. But at one point, I think I coveted it. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's the only true compliment. <laughs> In the creative world, the only true compliment is I wish I had done that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, so one of my, one of my favorite ways that speaking of when you talk about your sort of life uh, and being a fan of your show, sometimes when you talk about your background and and one of your guests asks you what sort of, how'd you grow up? And you just say regular, like regular Christian. Yeah. (laughs) That's sort of your, your answer. And that sort of just fits perfectly. And I think anyone that comes from an evangelical background sort of gets that right away that it's just assumed that that's regular. Right. So Right. 
I mean, if we were in Utah, it would have a different meaning. People would say, how were you raised? I would say regular. And, and everyone would know that I meant a Latter-day Saint, right? But I feel like so many people, I'm sort of making a joke that so much of the country <laughs> is, uh, it seems to me, so much of the country is evangelical or non-denominational, which is really what I was. It right. was just evangelical right. leaning. It, it just was. I don't know why we didn't, we don't, that church doesn't call itself evangelical, but for some reason it sounds more open-armed right. to say right. non-denominational. You're an evangelical church. I, I, I don't understand why they resist that. <laughs> if you have like a nine-branch mission system, you're an evangelical church. Like, <laughs> it's fine. Like, yeah. why, why resist it? It's okay. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but that's sort of one of their one of their tactics, right, is for it to be a little just uh, nondescript. And they sort well, of— Well, non-denominational sounds great. It sounds right. really groovy. It's like you can be a Baptist or a Catholic or whatever. But no, you can't. Like, you can't. It's not a high— I don't even say this like I'm not mad about it. You know what I'm saying? But like if you're right. Catholic, you can't go to a non-denominational church and get anything that you're used to getting. Like right. there's not going to be but if you're evangelical and go to a non-denominational church, you'll be right at home. Right. So it, that's the confusion. Yeah, absolutely. Or if you're Lutheran or 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 any of those high churches. It's mine was very as I say in the book it was like, you know, beige carpet that matched the congregation perfectly. You know, we had the baptismal, the chlorine-filled baptismal right behind. It looked very modern. It was like a convention center. And I want to be very careful here. When I talk about or even make fun of my church, it's not with any vitriol. That I, I kind of want to say that right up top is like, I love shitting on the church. I love making fun of the church. I, I, I do. But I don't do it from an angry place or a bitter place. Like, I look back on that time pretty fondly. Mm -hmm. There was some stuff that I could have done without um, but for the most part, any, any anger that I have, that's, that's what was so important to me in my book was it's not a deconstructing book. I love deconstructing. It's, it's an interesting thing for about four years. I feel is about as long as you should really tolerate your ego's desire to like tear down really mm -hmm. actively in a bitter, angry way, yeah. tearing down church and watching all the documentaries and reading all the books and just getting really upset and all that. I, I, I think too many Christians get stuck in the deconstruction and they never enter into like a beautiful reconstruction. I don't mean necessarily a reconstruction of a Jesus narrative in your life. I just mean a reconstruction of how are you going to interpret reality? Right. How, yeah. However you're going to do that, get on with it. Stop talking about like what was flawed that was given to you move on. We, we're all going to die. The clock's ticking. Let's start <laughs> talking about how we're going to look at reality now today. Right. So I, I think the way that we, the lens through which we look at the world makes a huge difference mm -hmm. on how we behave, the quality of our life, everything. Yeah. So like, you know, tear it up and burn it down, but like get on with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, and I, I agree with that. I think that eventually like a lot of times if you sort of reside in that bitterness or that anger, like it's proper and right to process it. Um, yeah. but it can envelop you and that is not always the healthiest place to stay. Yeah. It's just another way that it's, it's, um, it's fucking you. So if you feel fucked by your tradition, it's still fucking you. If all you're doing is kicking up dust, talking about how it did you wrong. Right. Like that's right. that it's still gucking up gunking up your gears, right. clean it out. 
Clean it out, open the windows, let in the light, let in the air. Like, it's like with our parents. At a certain point, you have to go like, yeah, they're just people. Those were just people, and they did their best. And your church was also just people doing its best. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And in the same way that people can get stuck overanalyzing and really remaining and replaying hurt from like mild or, or, or major psychological trauma from your parents, you can do the same thing with your church. And at a certain point, you just have to be mature and be like, that's what happened. That's what I'm working with. Right. And what's it, how's it going to, how's it going to help me move forward? Because I think there is a really interesting, interesting is the wrong word. There's a really incredible, ineffable mystery that we're all swimming in. Mm -hmm. And just because the first thing that you were handed to kind of interpret and participate with that mystery wasn't complete. I mean, how could any system be complete? Don't get too stuck in, in complaining about that. Yeah. And, and to your point, like you can absolutely, what you said earlier, it doesn't have to be the same sort of narrative. If you experience trauma in that narrative, don't engage in it anymore. You know, that's right. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Just disengage from that, but hopefully you can find another way in which to pursue meaning. Yeah. That was not me. I'm sort of surprised that I still, you know, I consider myself Christ leaning. That's the term that I sort of made up because people always want to know what I am. And the reason I'm Christ leaning is because I really love discovering and uncovering truth in, in the words of Jesus and the story of Jesus in a way that I never was, it was never explained to me in those terms. It was Mm -hmm. always kind of turned into um, membership. It was all about the words of Jesus were strangely (laughs) pro-capitalist and they were like very, like somehow somehow Republican. (laughs) Yeah. He's a white Republican capitalist Jesus. And when you go back, it's, and I use these words deliberately, even though it's not maybe literal, but it's like, so much more exciting. It's almost like it's like sexier than that. It's dangerous. You know, they killed the guy in the story. You don't kill a guy that's just like, you know, make a buck and a fair profit and uh, everybody goes to heaven if you say a magic prayer. That's not that crazy. Just like Buddha came to like shake up Hinduism. Remember, Buddha was a Hindu. Jesus was a Jew and he came to kind of like shake things up. It was like really mm-hmm. incredible. And, and, and that's why you know, when when people give a lot of the people that I love a hard time, Richard Rohr, Rob Bell, for shaking up Christianity, I'm like, they're doing, where would they be but at their father's work? That's what we're here to do. The <laughs> establishment and the buildings and the and the power systems are always going to be the enemy of living spirit. And that's that's what we're here to do is kick up some dust so it doesn't take itself too seriously or think that it's it. It, that You know, that's idolatry. It, it thinks it's it. We think the Bible is it. We think the church is it. What what hubris, what, what pride that you think you have it in your magical four walls and no one else has it? Mm-hmm. God is so much more fluid and expansive and incredible than that. <laughs> and, and, and that's why Jesus comes and, you know, kicks shit over in the temple and, and metaphorically and literally things are being torn down. Right. And that's what Buddha did. And, and that's what Muhammad did. Everybody was like going like, wake up. It's not an ego trip. It's not a sports team. It's not a parade. And it's not something that's just going to help you 
fit in and, and stop thinking about the big questions of life. It's a dance, it's a play, it's a flow. It's something so much more interesting than, than any of those things that we love. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, I'd love to sort of go back in your story a little bit, just sort of your biography and talk about some of the ways in which you arrived to where you are now. Yeah. So you, you mentioned you went to this non-denominational church and you said you don't really have any um, sort of malice or ill will towards your memories of that time. I have, I have some. I just don't feel <laughs> I just don't feel it anymore. You know what right. I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still have it. But that's a big that's a big thing for me. Is, but we can get into it. What I'm saying is, if you want to talk about what I didn't like about it, it's still those files are still accessible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can still talk about it. <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't give me a knot in my stomach. You right. know what I'm saying? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make your blood like, boil and it, it doesn't. No. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they're just they were doing they were doing what they thought was right. That's what I think is so interesting and, and that's fine and, and that was part of my story but it, what what is your question about that part of my story like what oh, would you like yeah well i i always like to sort of understand where people's first how they develop their own first framework of god and and of the world and that sort of thing as far as both within their church that they're in but also just how they felt within that church yeah because some people feel sort of isolated but some feel accepted so where on that sort of spectrum was your experience as a kid and then like, you know, getting older into like youth group and that sort of that sort yeah. of thing? I think it was a little of both, to be honest. It, it was like I remember being young and just taking to the idea of God very quickly and just hook, line and not hook, line and sinker like it was a trap. I just mean like I'm in. You go like there's a there's a force that made this. There's a there's a man that made this basically. <laughs> yeah, like, got it. I need <laughs> to know what's going on here. And as right. I joke in my book, like people with keys to cars and houses and wallets and dress shoes and khakis told me that they had the answers. And grownups were the authority on everything. They they told me to get. You know, it's not that absurd to believe them when they said the Bible was it. If these are the same people that are sticking us with needles and, you know, pulling out our cavities, like it's it's like not weird at all to be like, I trust you. Right. So I, I took into it really. I, I have a memory of going to Sunday school, I think, for the first time. And beforehand, we went to like a Christian bookstore, a CBD, Christian book distributor. Is that right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> that has a different meaning now, okay. doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I CBD, not Christian book distributor. But um, we went and I bought like a little framed picture of Jesus and I bought like a new Bible. Like I, I, I loved it. I bought like a pen to like take notes. I was too young to even read the Bible, but I just wanted the stuff. I wanted right. to be in the group. I really wanted to be a good kid. And they were telling me that there was like a club for good kids. And i that's kind of part of what I like about church was that it did encourage kindness and generosity and patience and love, you know, to a certain extent. They all have their limits to their to their love. But for the most part, the sweet people, especially on an individual level, were very loving and patient. Mm -hmm. and kind. Yeah. And I really like that. 
but so I, I did feel, I remember kids making fun of me because I had a framed picture of Jesus, but that's fair. And, <laughs> and then the next week I didn't bring it, but like, I liked it. My, my family was a little bit tumultuous and church was just like a place where everybody had to be on their best behavior. Like yeah. my parents had to play the church versions of themselves. Not that they were monsters or anything, but like everybody was just like, you dress up. Like that tells you everything. You put on right. your church clothes, your church face, your church smile. Everybody goes around churching each other. And it's really nice. If your house is like a little bit on the rocks, it's nice to go to a place where there were other specifically male figures that were like really nice. My youth pastor was like really, really great to me. His, mm. his name was Mike and he was like sweet. And I got kicked out of youth group actually. And then he, cause I was like such a, I joked around too much. Me and my friend Tom would joke around too much. This is later, this is in mm. high school. And then Mike called me and I remember where I was. It was a really important moment. And he he was like, you know, I feel bad because the guy, the guy that me and my friend Tom acted up too much was like a volunteer. He was just some guy. <laughs> yeah. And we just like a substitute teacher. We just <laughs> mucked around so much that he just was like, I can't. They're disrupting everything. And <laughs> that poor guy's name I'm remembering now was Elliot. I feel so bad for Elliot. And then we we were like, well, I guess we're the bad kids. We're just the bad kids. And I don't know if that was going to set me on like a bad trajectory or anything, but Mike, the head pastor, called me and was like, I want to invite you to join my youth group, his core group. It wasn't youth group. It was the Wednesday night Bible study. Oh, yeah. So I was, I was about to like kind of break away from the church and he called and was like, join my group. And you know what? It worked. We didn't we didn't fuck around with Mike. He was he was an authority figure and it worked like he kind of reined us in. And that's where I, I learned a lot of the Bible that I know today. And mm -hmm. he was a really, really sweet guy. You know, I don't I don't necessarily think the, the core of Christianity is about being sweet, but who cares? He was like really, really sweet. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> Right. It, it can go a long way when you're a teenager to have like an, important. when yeah. a lot of adults just think you're by default just going to be either a pain in the ass or just a jerk to them or, or not listen to them. And we were, we were, we were bad. I don't, we, I mean, looking back, I was probably acting out because of intense anxiety on, on different fronts, school and a little bit at home as well. And then I think Mike saw that. I think he was like, I get it. And and he was kind of one of the first, you know, not not all the way, but he was close to ha like a father figure. I was like, this is a man. You re do you remember like the first man you met that loved God? For some reason, like women, you were like, yeah, mom loves God. Like, because there's something feminine about it. It's nurturing. It's loving. It's, it's, it's emotional. Mm -hmm. But like when I met a man that was like, I can build a shed and I love the Lord. I'm like, for some reason that really meant something to me Right to yeah. see them surrender, to see the, of course I don't believe this, but like the strong one surrender to a, to a God it had more meaning to me. Right. Uh, growing up in sort of like a patriarchal sort of system. Right. It, it allows for that sense of vulnerability that you don't really get around other men. Like, that's right. You know, like because of like men's groups and stuff, you know, you get up early and you, you drink coffee or whatever, but you know, a lot of times it's like this small little spigot of vulnerability that, that men are allowed in evangelicalism yeah. to like be a Again, little, <laughs> that's it. That's one of the good things. They can be a little, it's, it's a place where like, I would see my father tearing up at the music 
And that was like one of the only things, only places that I saw vulnerability mm-hmm. was my, was music in general with my dad. He'd also cry at Bob Seger, but like for some reason, <laughs> the, the songs about a watching God helping and, and being with us and carrying us was very meaningful to him. And I'm just a vulnerability guy. I like that stuff. And I'm, and I'm a, you know, the big questions kind of guy, even when right. I was a kid. So I, I really like that about the church. Yeah. And it definitely, the way, the way you mentioned it in your book is like the, the question of like, what is this? Like, it, it seems like that has been with you for as long as you can sort of remember. Yeah. I, yeah. I like that people now say that to me. Cause even when you said it, it's, it's good. It's helpful for me to just take a moment and go like, yep. That's, that is, I didn't know that's what contemplation is. You know, Christian contemplative prayer isn't what we thought it was, at least what I thought it was, which was closing your eyes and and asking really hard to have, you know, your asthma healed. I'm not putting that down. Go ahead and pray for your asthma to be healed. But that's not what contemplation is or contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer at its core is saying, why should anything exist? Why does anything exist? And it never fails, just now talking about it, it never fails to put me into the pocket. It gets me closer to what I would consider the kingdom of God, like that that place of not knowing. Yeah. And it's not, a, it's not a scary place. The more you practice being there, it's actually a very vibrant, living, and safe place. It's the only safe place because you start to transcend your ego. You start to go like, what is the piece of isness that is asking what is? That's what's eternal. That's what doesn't die. Pete dies. Blake dies. You know what I'm saying? Isness isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So when you start to say, what is this? And then you start to ask, how is the isness that I am a part of what is? And could they be separate? That's where peace exists. That, that's really why I think my book is fairly practical is it's like it's kind of woo woo. But like spiritual processes or spiritual um, beliefs are, are sort of the only way that I found lasting non-circumstantial peace. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about getting people to believe what I believe. I don't yeah. care what symbol systems you use or what methods you use or what tradition you enjoy. Right. I'm talking about can you identify as a as the the essence that's looking at your eyes? Not the story of the body and the brain going around, going to school. Does she like me? Doesn't she like me? What am I going to eat? When am I going to sleep? That's all bullshit. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, be in the world, but don't be of the world. Don't be in the spirit. Don't forget that you are it. And and I, well, that's how I, I'm sorry I'm preaching now. But that's what I feel Christ is bringing <laughs> us to, is Christ woke up to his interconnectedness with all things and he's saying, go and do likewise. Join me and realize who you really are. Yeah. Yeah, that I mean that 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 resonates with me. I mean, I I definitely have also sort of moved on from what we we inherited like similar initial narratives. Um, but I I love other metaphors. Like, have you heard of Paul Tillich's like the ground of being? That's how he perceives God. The ground of being is great. Um, and so he's a great theologian from like the middle of the twentieth century. To me, like there was a period where that meant a lot to me. Well, and dude, I, that that's it. We don't, as part of it, we don't have, we, you can debate whether or not God exists. That's not really that interesting. We can start with this exists and then, and start with what is this? Instead of going, could there be something else? Right. Could there be something else somewhere else? 
you just start with what we can agree on, that this exists, that consciousness exists. And that's what I see in the Bible as well. You know, when Moses asks God his name in the Old Testament, God says, my name is I am. That's ground of being. That's I am amness. The quality of am is what <laughs> I am. Right. Yeah. So that's what we call the divine indwelling or the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm saying? Is we have or the Brahman, a peace or like any of those. Or the Brahman. Yeah. Exactly. Or the Atman. We have the Atman and, and that's the Brahman. We have the indwelling of God and God is is the big the big it. Yeah. And we're we're part of it. So how can you be separate from it? It's I like to say you're not loved by God, you are God's love. And love is yes. Love is this undulating, self-perpetuating, life feeding on life, growing, expanding, dying, burning, but never going anywhere. That is the yes of existence. And you, as a Christian, we used to think that we were kind of passing through this, like we were somehow apart from it. And our behavior, just basic morality, was being analyzed by a God that was somewhere else, someone, sometime else, just mm -hmm. kind of analyzing it to punish us or reward us, which is just like, it's just like a bad story. It's not like a very interesting story. When you realize the game is about realizing your inherent dignified belonging here, as Alan yeah. Watts says, you're not a stranger here. You are, you're this, you're this, <laughs> you're, you're part of it. And the game is to, is to die to your small self while you're still alive and wake up to your which is yes this is this yeah in your book you've mentioned that like and just now in our conversation you mentioned you sort of wanted to be a good kid you like you were invested in these questions but you also acknowledge that there were certain things that were difficult especially things regarding teachings around sexuality what a lot of people call purity culture now like that's generally the term and one of the one of the parts that i that i loved uh in your book and just sort of uh, related to was when you talk about like discovering these tapes that your older brother had and you said cut, yeah. cut and shame mend and lust and uh, yeah. how this like how the initial story that we're given isn't this thing about sort of exploring you know what is this and and being okay with with things there there's a particularly big divide in evangelicalism uh, around like our bodies and sexuality. And so you, you, you talk about that at length in, in different ways. But I was really struck by how, how you portrayed that when you were sort of early on. Was that something that you had a lot of in, in youth group and college? Because yeah. I know you went to a Christian college too. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember finding somebody in college. We, we were jerks and we read this kid's journal. He left his journal in our room and we were jerks and we read it. And there wasn't really anything juicy in there, but he did say at a couple points, he was like, I sinned again today. And I, I remember we just all knew what that meant because he was a guy and he was a Christian. And the only sin <laughs> that was really, really hard for all of us, with a few exceptions, I still knew a couple people that now that I look back, the term we would use, I think is asexual. I think I knew a couple asexual people who were sort of killing it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of being Christian, they could take the huge horny elephant out of the room and just be like appear holier than all of us, you know. Of course, that 
is, is I hope that they were naturally asexual because there were some people that just repressed it so deep. I, I make a reference to a kid jerking off on the bike path in our town because, and he was one of the best kids at church and like it, it just sort of erupted. So purity culture is repression culture leads to a lot of sexual deviance. It also leads to a lot of like cults and stuff where people are going to be like, doing some fucked up shit, like bad, bad cults. I don't mean like groups of people having a Bible study. I mean like fucked up, you have to sleep in this cage because you're evil. Right. So what I think is going on there, you know, I'm really grateful for Richard Rohr. And if anybody listening doesn't know Richard Rohr, I mean, you don't have to listen to me. He says it better and with more, even like this beautiful, like biblical authority that I think you'll enjoy if you were raised in this tradition. But he talks about the misinterpretation when Paul says uh, sins of the flesh being this thing. Richard, obviously, we all took that to mean sins of the flesh, like the sins you do with your flesh, meaning masturbation, meaning sex, meaning lust. And Richard is like, no, he's talking about what I was talking about earlier, false self, real self. There's the body, there's the ego, there's the story of you and the story of Pete, which is not the real story. And then there's the story of the spirit, which is eternal, which is the real game and the only game in town. So he's saying the things that sort of like keep you in your body, the, the, the sins of your small self is the way that I put that. Yeah. But, you know, the church and Richard is the he's a Franciscan friar. For those that don't know, he preaches on Sunday. Uh, he He's the first to tell you, he's like, look, the church created a codependent relationship with its congregation. And the best way to do that was to convince them that they needed the priests to exonerate them. And if there's no sin constantly dragging them down, there's no need for exoneration. You're not going to fill up the seats. You're not going to have a thriving church. So the best way to do it is to hinge it. And I'm not saying they did this deliberately necessarily, like the Illuminati or something, but maybe they did it subconsciously. I don't know. But you tie it into your physiology, your your absolute, your body. This is why I joke, we, we had the book Everybody Poops, because for some reason, we feel shame about our bodies. It's right. just a weird thing about being human. Like we're too smart to be an animal. So we're at odds with our animal side. So then the church got wise to that. They start really leaning into the stuff that's anti-sex to keep people from coming back and, and to keep us thinking that that's why we need the church to get us into God is because our bodies are evil. But but they're not. It's bullshit. It's a bad story. And it's and it's a misuse of a pretty b beautiful story. Yeah. Have you heard of the the author Linda K. Klein? She wrote a book called Pure. It's about the purity culture movement, especially as it related to its impact on women. Uh -huh. One of the lines in her book uh, is that that's really Im impactful as she says that that women were taught that their bodies were dangerous and men were taught that their minds were. Um, oh, wow. And that, and that, that is sort of like talking about this, like dual self or like this divide between body and spirit and that sort of thing. I think that is the way in which like that division sort of happens within evangelicalism and in the way purity culture sort of exists is women are taught your body is a temptation. Men are taught, Okay, we're going to let your body off the hook, but your mind you got to get under control. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's where that's where the like the the entry vector is for yeah. for that sort of toxic belief. And if you take like 
God leaning kids. Like we're already kind of aware of the power of our minds and like how we right. think. Yeah. It's sort of like goes hand in hand to be like, I have what I call the lifeguard God in my brain who's mad at me if I think a swear or a picture pushing an old person because they're slow on the sidewalk or anything evil, right? That's one thing. And you can kind of get that under control, maybe through willpower. I don't know. But when it comes to like a fresh batch of hormones every morning, <laughs> yeah, it's your, your evil is baked into you. And, right. and, and it's really unfortunate. Like if somebody had explained to me what I'm saying to you, that you're not a stranger here, that, that your sexuality isn't something keeping you from God, that, that, that there's a way to interact with it that may be more beautiful than other ways. I don't know if, how to even go there, but you know, there's a way to flow with it more naturally, let's say for you, for your truth. Um, I would have really benefited from that. But you know, what happened was a lot of times in the church, they didn't want to talk about masturbation, which is weird because we were all 14, 15, 16 year old kids and we're all kind of coming, like I say in the book, I, every week I would confess for prayer requests, I would ask for help with lust. And even though Mike was great, why didn't he just say like, guys, let's talk about masturbation. Let's talk about it. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm sort of glad he didn't because I don't want to hear what that guy would have said about it, to be honest. But if somebody could have been like, it's okay. My mom, by the way, and my dad both told me it was okay. But the church told me it wasn't okay. And somehow they trumped my parents. That's the power that the church has because they have a very old book of answers. You know what I'm saying? Right. So even yeah. though I had a mom that was like, it's totally normal, it's fine. I still wasn't getting, I was either getting silence from the church or I was getting like a very clear, like, it's not okay. Uh, and you're going to hell for that. So stop it. Yeah. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth. And this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Speaking of as far as like dealing with messages of things like not being okay and, and all of that within youth group context, I'm sort of forcing this segue a little bit, but roll with me. <laughs> mm. um, so one of, one of the things that I personally found as sort of an outlet while I was like this repressed, anxious teenager going to youth group was actually like when we moved, we, I moved in high school. And so like during my sophomore year, I didn't really have many friends cause I moved at the tail end of freshman year mm-hmm. and I, then I discovered a youth group and got really plugged in, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of like tense social teenage drama plus all this religious stuff. But what, one of my outlets was Comedy Central. <laughs> I would come home yeah. and binge Comedy Central and just watch it for two or three hours after school. What sort of role did comedy play as far as it being something that was like a little bit sort of transgressive, you know, something that allowed you to mm. think of things or did that part of comedy play a role for you at all? 
Yeah, I, I think it did more subconsciously than consciously. I was definitely drawn to it. My mom and my dad are both very funny people, and a lot of comedy, even if you do it in sort of a playful or a benign way, you're you are crossing a line. So I mentioned Rob. Rob Bell and I are, are, are very close friends. And one of the things that he noticed when we started hanging out five or six years ago was that comedians start where most people stop, you know? Yeah. So my pastor is is saying everything about lust except he won't say jerking off. He, he won't do it. Right. He's too, and I sympathize. He's too awkward to mention it in a room full of young boys. Maybe he thought it was inappropriate. I don't know. He, he might have had a good reason. But comedians started jerking off. You know what I mean? Read my book. That, that's the whole <laughs> thing. It's just like, I want to talk about, I only want to talk about the thing that you're not supposed to talk about because it's an appropriate medium. I'm a comedian. This is a book. You can read it quietly. Nobody's going to hear me. It's fine. And I, I do think I was drawn to that, not only on Comedy Central, but in my parents and in my funnier friends, was that like the thing that you're not supposed to talk about like if somebody dies, like the comedian is the one that like a fr my friend uh, Brody Stevens killed himself and they had this beautiful service for him. And like three or four of his friends went on and they were they weren't comedians and they were sort of droning on and on kind of dry. And then Jeff Ross, you know, the roast guy goes mm -hmm. up and he goes like with friends like these, no wonder he killed himself and everyone dies, you know, and it's like such a <laughs> it's such a crazy thing. But I was like, that's appealing to me. This is these, this is a a role we can play where you're sort of free. I, that's that's what's really appealing to me about comedians is that they're very free to sort of move in any direction and say the thing that you're not supposed to say, right? So if you take uh, an upbringing like ours, I don't think it's a coincidence that we sort of started watching things that were like over the line. Even though I probably did think some of it was inappropriate, um, I was also probably, you know, like going to, <laughs> like, you know, you go to the circus, some of it's supposed to be like shocking and, and yeah. gross you out or frighten you. That's probably how I was watching comedy. I was probably, shocked. I was probably right. frightened, but I was also very intrigued. Right. And, um, like and then little, when I found, what's that? Oh, sorry. Just like a little teenage kid, like clutching pearls. Cause it's so. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. My monocle falls out. <laughs> Yeah. But I once yeah. I found, you know, they played Bill Cosby, uh, controversy noted. Um, they played his uh, Noah's Ark routine in church. Mm -hmm. And that meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. My mother used to put the comics out, the funny pages out from the newspaper. That meant a lot to me. They encouraged us. They took us to see Cosby. They took us to see like comedy still in my family, even apart from me. Is like a value. It's like, it's good. It's like, like I said in the book, it's like lighten up is like something they say all the time. They, they'll make a terrible joke. And if you don't laugh, they're like, lighten up. Like it's, it's on you. So even though they were religious, they're, they're, my, my parents' humanity sort of spills out from them. They are mm -hmm. not like uptight. They are not. I got it from the church. I didn't get it from the parents. The church went out between influences to make me a little bit more, um, whatever conservative. Mm -hmm. So anyway, then, then, you know, when I found Seinfeld and I read his book sign language and even that my mom would like get it for me, 
was cool. And I remember he had a joke about Adam and Eve in there. And I showed it to my mom with such pride. Like, look, here's like a clean joke. It's about the Bible. And I read it to her. (laughs) She laughed. And so I'm sort of getting this, this message that it's okay to be funny. Mm -hmm. And, and, and if it's okay to be funny, like everything's kind of okay. It's really beautiful. Like if you can laugh about it, it, it's sort of okay. And then, and then you can kind of laugh about your fears and your doubts. And, and I, I started watching prior too. that was way too advanced for me. Like he's talking about smoking crack and right. you know, prostitutes and stuff. I wasn't ready for that, but I was ready for, you know, baby steps along the way. Yeah. So you have this sort of mix of catharsis and, but then you, you sort of have this the way you talk about it in, in the book, and I think this is something that, that a lot of people within evangelicalism or who grew up this way, uh, sometimes it teaches you to, to be a little a little timid, I guess. And one of the things that it teaches you that some people are a little afraid of is like regular college. You know, what if you, yeah. what if you drift away from the Lord if you go to a state, yeah. state college? And yeah. so I chose a Christian college because I thought I wanted to be a pastor. That didn't work out. Me too. <laughs> yeah. But, and yeah, like whenever I first heard you tell your joke about this is the only universe in which you aren't a youth pastor, like <laughs> yeah. that one really resonated with me. Cause like, there's a very good chance that's true. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, so you, you go to Gordon, what was your experience there like? And then I, I do have a couple of like minutia questions about what was sort of the the rules of the road and, and everything there for students. But yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I'll do you one better. I, I remained afraid of universities for maybe 10 years after Gordon. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> cause I'm a comedian. So I would re- perform at like the university of Michigan or something. I remember doing a show with the Sklar brothers at the university of Michigan specifically that was on St. Patrick's day and the whole campus was just like on fire. And I was right. so <laughs> scared of it. Like yeah. I, I was like years. I mean, I was already divorced. Like I was basically in my atheist phase, but I was going around like still going like, I'm so glad I went to Gordon. I don't like it here. I don't. It's like Lord of the Flies. It's just a bunch of horny, beautiful, <laughs> muscular, drunk kids fucking each other and punching like that's what it seems to me to this day i've always been 40 even when i was 14 i was 40 so like this is one of those things where the christian model really suited me it was a safer it it it, and it was great for me i think gordon is a pretty backwards fucked place in so many ways like they're anti-gay they're anti so many things that, that i'm just not behind but what I loved about it was it was like summer camp. It was so easy for me. It was <laughs> my high school was I, I'm going to try and be serious here. Probably three times more difficult than my college. My college was a fart at the beach academic. <laughs> it was nothing. I was like a star student. You know, I don't mean I wasn't known as a star student. I just mean I had good grades and I barely tried. I barely tried. I was an English major and I'd never even read a book because I could just bullshit my way through things. And this isn't because I'm special. It's because it was pretty basic. It was easy. <laughs> there were a couple exceptions. There were some 
uh, Professor Borgman had some classes that kicked my ass. In fact, he was the first person, I didn't know it until years later looking back, that was teaching me how to read the Bible metaphorically. Uh, he had a great class like that, that kids used to have breakdowns in, that have like literal nervous breakdowns because they were being told that the Bible was... They, they weren't even being told that. He was like, as an experiment, we're going to read the Bible as, as a literature, not as a literal thing. And people oh, yeah. couldn't, couldn't handle it. They would have meltdowns. Um, and I loved it. I just thought it was the cool. And he, he remains a real cornerstone of, of my brain, I think. That guy was amazing. So anyway, it was super easy, which meant that I could do stand-up. I could do improv. I met... Uh, Mark Stevick, who's this professor that really changed my life. He encouraged me to do stand-up. He encouraged me to do theater. And because it was so safe, it wasn't the University of Michigan. People weren't like, you know, 69ing on the quad full of Baileys. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Everyone was bored. Everyone was pretty sweet. So if you put on like an improv show at a Christian college and it's pretty clean. It's like, it's a clean, friendly improv show. It was, it was a, it was heaven on earth. It was so, it was such a desperate, you know, environment for entertainment. And I was desperate to entertain people. So I was like, this is the best. There's, it's like, it's like slumber camp. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to do. We're not getting drunk. We're not smoking weed. We're not having sex. You want to come watch me do stand up? Sure. What else am I going to fucking do? <laughs> so like I thrived in that, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has this great book. I think it's called David and Goliath. And it's about how you shouldn't go. Don't go to the best school you get into. Go to like a small school and dominate because it'll set a pattern in your life of success. Like if I had gotten into, I wouldn't, I didn't even get into Wheaton for fuck's sake. But if I had gotten into a, a more difficult school and just co- sort of squeaked by, I don't know if my psyche would have been formed in the same way. I, I, I My confidence was grotesquely magnified by the fact that I was like, college is easy. Meanwhile, I, I'd go home for Thanksgiving and my friends would have gray hair because they're all going like William and Mary and Oberlin and stuff. And they're like fucking real ass schools. And I'm like, we're we're doing cut and paste stuff. Like, <laughs> I, I did a turkey hand. That was my major. I did a turkey hand. It was so easy. It was so easy. And that's what I liked about it. So did you have any, did Gordon at the time, did I have any sort of like draconian rules about the media you could consume? Like I went to Indiana Wesleyan and we couldn't watch rated R movies. Oh, wow. You had curfew as a freshman. If you didn't get a 3.0 or higher, oh, wow. you got curfew as a sophomore. <laughs> Three chapels a week. Uh, all sorts of wild shit. Yeah. We had three chapels a week, yeah. Yeah, with like six skips per semester. Um, anyways, like lots of really locked down things. And my wife actually was a stage director. I think, I hope I have that term right. <laughs> she was one of the directors of like a, it was called Friday Night Live. And it was like a once a month thing. But they had to submit all of their scripts for approval to student oh, de- wow. to student development um basically as censorship so was that some was that sort ah. of <laughs> was that part well, of uh not, not that bad like could you dance the students, the students sort of um governed ourselves right like if i put in terminator 2 or something 
it would have been another student that would have been like, I don't know if that's keeping your mind on what's good and right and holy. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, so I noted, like, I would rage. We had open dorm. Like, you could only be in a girl's room for, like, a three-hour window, um, you know, four days out of the out of the work week. Um, and I would complain about that. And other students would be like, you know, it's for our own good. It's like, it's to keep us out of temptation. So it wasn't really like, there wasn't a big brother. It was ourselves. Like it was self-governed. Like looking back, if we had been open to it, the RAs were just other students. Like we could have been doing whatever we wanted, but we were such good kids that like we would police ourselves. Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no limits. Like we, we, oh, you, well, you can only, you got to leave the room at eight. Why? <laughs> Who's going to tell Brian? But the problem was <laughs> Brian would tell. But if we, if we could have like convinced Brian, like there's a good national lampoon movie about like a very socially smart kid that goes to a Christian school. Cause you're basically five conversations away from having a utopia. You know what I mean? Where it's like, <laughs> just don't report me. Just don't report me. It's okay. And if you can get some Bible verses in there and explain <laughs> why they shouldn't report you and why it's okay. Cause I, I used to be like the people that are having sex are having sex anyway. It was people like me. I just couldn't see the end of Forrest Gump. I wasn't having sex with people. I like I sort of took it as an offense that they thought they had to police my my morality. I was like, right. I don't have sex because I believe that I'm supposed to save myself. It's not because you make it difficult for me to have sex. And I knew people were having sex. And you know what they were doing? They closed the door. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, so you're just fucking the good kids while the bad kids are fucking like it, you're, you're, you're in, you're in the way. But anyway, there was that there, were, but we didn't have to like the improv team. And when I did stand up a couple times, there was, there was no censorship that that's a little extreme. So as far as Christian colleges go, there's no curfew. You and you could dance like we were allowed to dance. Mm. So like it was pretty lax. But I mean, that that's saying something now. I'm still shocked that the school is still, you know, anti-gay. Like when we were there, there were so many gay kids. Like for some reason, the Christian community is so negative to gay people and yet so alluring to so many, <laughs> apparently, or maybe their parents, maybe it's their parents are sending them there. Yeah. But I knew so many gay, gay people. I was like, these are gay people. And I wasn't as conservative as, as the other people. And I'd be like, shit, these are gay people. And you know what? They are gay people. They are now gay people. They were then too. But like, it, it, and Gordon is still repressive in that way and other ways. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that has to do with like the alums that, that fund them and everything forced That's them right. to, That's right. to stay. Oh. What I realized was like, nobody cares. Like they can have those laws on the books, but at a certain point we realized that like, if you had cool friends that weren't going to narc on each other, right. you could right. basically have whatever experience you wanted on paper. Gordon is this way. The experience of Gordon itself is, is very different. It's sort of like, like anything, the city of Manhattan has a million different places. And so is Gordon. Like I had cool friends, interesting friends. I had cool professors, interesting professors. So my experience was very different from somebody that went in 
and stayed in like a different dorm, had different friends, took different classes, different major, they might have had a more tightly wound experience. Mine, when I look back on it, it, I remember it fondly, like being fun and and easy. And 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 to your point, I was scared of drinking and drugs. I'm glad this. I don't think this is necessarily religious, but I'm glad that I didn't drink. I'm glad that I didn't do drugs. I'm glad that I had the gift of boredom because that's when I started studying improv and that's when I started writing standup. Mm-hmm. If I, I, I smoke pot from time to time now, not very often, but maybe once a month or something. And if I had smoked pot when I was in college, I don't know, this sounds so conservative. I have no judgment. I'm just saying for me, cause I, I'm kind of an addict behavior. If I had smoked it in college, I don't know if I'd be where I'm at. Just because I'd just be like, "This is fine. I'll, I'll just fucking, <laughs> I'll just work for my dad and smoke weed." Like I really think that might have squashed me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's fair, and that's just you knowing yourself. You that's know? me. That's me. Right. I don't I don't think you should be told not to do it. But I chose Gordon, be, and I, I'm really glad I did, just because it was a bubble and it kept me bored, and it kept it. You know, it basically burned off a couple of my early 20s years where a lot of dumbass mistakes are getting made. Right. Yeah. At college, you also, you meet your wife and you you move to Chicago. And then this is a big turning point in your life and in your book where you go to Chicago and you go to New York and you spend time. And then eventually that marriage ends. Yeah. The way you say it, you describe the affair that led to the divorce as tearing a hole in your heart and that more than a hole, it was an escape hatch and that you climbed through. Yeah. And that is this major trauma that you experienced in your life that, that led to a lot of changes. So that period of your, your life, how did that call into question the sort of things that had been so present in your life before? Yeah. It's a little embarrassing to admit, but like I, I thought of God as like a protection service. I thought I I was paying into him like the mafia because I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't swear. I didn't have sex. Um, I did my quiet times or whatever it might've been. And then my wife, I, but actually I forgot the biggest one is I got married. You know what I mean? It's like, right. I'm, I'm 22 years old you told me if I was going to have sex and I, I, I did technically, that's a longer story. Let's not do that. We did the most Christian thing in the world where we had sex and then we stopped and then, and then we waited <laughs> to get married and then had sex again. We resumed having sex. Um, but we did, uh, slip up, I guess, but it was very deliberate. Anyway, that's another story. But I really thought that God was, um, protecting me, you know, like that, that was the deal. It was an if then situation. If I behave, then God will keep me in keep me in the in the good life. And obviously that's not true. And even though uh, I, I still think a lot of us believe that, like kind of quietly, that it's a superstition model. It's it's almost mm-hmm. like a voodoo model. It's also very much like the Santa Claus model. It's also a very Greek God model. A lot of our understanding of of Yahweh and and Jesus is Greek. It's like a don't anger the gods, right? You know, there's a man. When we say there's a man on a cloud with a beard, we mean Zeus. Like we got that from Zeus. (laughs) It's not in the Bible. I I know God moves around as a cloud, but there's no man on a cloud. That's that's fucking Zeus, dude. (laughs) So 
it stands to reason some of the other Greek stuff would come along with that, meaning like be good otherwise. And, you know, you see that in the Old Testament, too. It's like don't have gods before me and I'm going to wipe out the priests of Baal and all that stuff. So I wanted to be the good priest, not the priest of Baal. And then um, the the thing that I made for him, my marriage, uh, he doesn't even protect. You know what I mean? It's like it's like I bought him a car and he left it unlocked on the streets in the bad neighborhood. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> I worked hard to get you that car. You just yeah. left it running in a bad neighborhood. So it made me, I didn't know at the time, but it made me re-examine and start to look for a model of the universe that included suffering. And I don't think... Um, my church, I can't speak for other people's cause there are beautiful sects of Christianity. I'm sure mine was not a good one when it came to suffering. In fact, when yeah. my wife left me, one of our associate pastors just said, I'm sorry, we're not very good with suffering. He was a beautiful man. And that was a nice thing to say cause they weren't, and I don't blame them for that. But like, that's when you start getting into it, you know, it stands to reason that like Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, and then also mystical Christianity that have like a deep appreciation appreciation for suffering as being the curriculum to divine union. Of course, yeah. you see it in the life of Christ itself that he's rejected by his friends, that he's tortured, that he's killed. And we saw that as something like a good friend, like we were all stuck in a tunnel and one of us has to swim out and push a button and rescue us, but he's going to die in the process. That's how we saw Jesus. He was the guy who like took it on the chin and he's going to swim. He's going right. to save, but he's going to die in the process, but he's going to save us. And he's going to do that. So we don't have to do that. Now, of course, I see it as he's doing it to model to us that that's what we all have to do. That suffering, internal, uh, spiritual suffering and external circumstantial suffering is the curriculum, is uh, the sandpaper that makes you wise, that makes you wake up. But I didn't have anything for that. I just had God was asleep at the wheel and he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. So once I saw, it's very Western, it's very achiever oriented, but once I saw that God wasn't paying out, I was like, well then forget it. <laughs> I, was yeah. like, I didn't, I wasn't like mad about it. I, I right. was, but I, I wasn't like, mean about it, but I was just sort of like, well, just this doesn't work. I'm out. Yeah. I, I thought we had a deal. We don't have a deal. I am going to swear. I am going to smoke. I am going to drink. I am going to have sex, do all those things you're not supposed to do because why not? You know, right. I, I'm, I'm glad that I, I did all those things starting when I was 28 because my brain was so much more formed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I did. Once yeah. my wife left, I didn't go crazy. In fact, there's a line in the book where I was like, I thought I was on a bender, but me on a bend, a Christian on a bender is just a regular person. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'd be at a bar at midnight and I'm like, did your wives leave you too? And I'm like, no, they're just, this is what people do in New York. <laughs> they, they get drunk and they have sex with each other. That's what people are doing. <laughs> Yeah. And then you have this period where you're just not engaged because you didn't have any anything to engage with. Like the narrative you had didn't go there. It stopped. Yeah. Um, and you sort of went beyond it. Then you, you talk about like taking mushrooms and then that sort of reignites this yeah. question for you. 
like the the yeah. things we talked about earlier that had always sort of been there this like what is this and and yeah. sort of the the wonder aspect of spirituality the reverence of it the rapture um, yeah yeah when that happened what propelled you to instead of necessarily finding things or trying to go back to something like Christianity or or at least evangelical style Christianity um what led you towards the path of like of like Ramdas and and all and Richard Rohr and all these folks that you've talked about um and written about and just because to me it's just it's so far removed and such an another entire world of spirituality that it's hard to I, I don't know it's hard to bridge that gap but I think it's a necessary one for a lot of people, and it's really helpful. You mean to Ramdas? Yeah, or because I know you, I know you've you've read a lot of different spiritual teachers. Yeah. Um, but what was it that that led from when you started really asking these questions again to finding a teacher yeah. like Ramdas? I do want to speak to that kind of the, your last point though. Is that like I I was actually texting with a friend of mine, and he was like. I told him to read Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, right? And it's a great audio book. And it's just, I think it's essential. I, I, you, you can absolutely be a Christian. You can be an atheist. It doesn't matter. It is a must read, I think, and a great listen. And then he was listening to it. And then he said, then in his car, he was listening to Joel Osteen. And Joel Osteen was saying, he said, not a similar message. He was saying the exact same message, which is basically mm. now is all we have. God and truth and light and love and peace and joy are only ever in the moment. And the real devil is thinking about the future or replaying the past. And that's taking us out of the kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. So to people that are listening that are like, it might be, it might always for you, Blake, it might always be a little too woo woo to go Hindu. I understand. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I get it. Like, right monkey gods and elephant gods and all that stuff. It's not for everybody and nor should it be. It doesn't have to be. But I'm so happy to say that there are these intermediaries uh, in between these extremes. And some of them are um, Eckhart Tolle, if you want something that's not specifically Christian. So if, if people are listening and they're true ex-evangelicals and they don't want too much Jesus in there, but just enough to keep them going, then read The Power of Now. And then if you really like the Christian tradition and you want the exact same stuff that Ram Dass is talking about, pretty much, 99, 99%, just read Richard Rohr. Just listen to – go on mm -hmm. go on iTunes and listen to False Self, True Self. It's a series of lectures by Richard Rohr. Change your life. Listen to Sermon on the Mount by Richard Rohr. It's also on iTunes. It'll change your life. It's unbelievable. It's all in there. Right. This guy has been slinging – hard, crazy truth since like 1985. And, and <laughs> it seems so like new and like, we're oh we're the emergent church. And like, dude, get out of here. Like <laughs> Richard was saying, like when Rob, and I would say this if Rob was in the room and he would agree, Rob writes Love Wins and everyone goes crazy because it's this new idea. Richard was saying the same stuff. A lot of people were saying the same stuff in the early 80s, in the 70s, you know what I mean? Like th this is this has been with us. And there's right. a lot of different doors into the same room. Mine happened to be uh, Ramdas, and then I kind of found the other guys. And it, you mentioned it, it had a lot to do with psychedelics. And when I said rapture, I didn't mean the rapture as Christians oh, yeah. use that yeah. term. 
I'm sure you know that. I mean experiencing rapture, being in rapture, um, having a religious experience. And I don't think psychedelics are for everybody. And I, I don't, I don't even really care if people take them or not. I used to, I used to be a little bit more proselytizing about them, Mm -hmm. but they're either going to happen or they're not. And, uh, if they do happen in my experience and in a lot of people's experience, it's a guaranteed (laughs) religious experience, basically, (laughs) whether or not it's religious in its form in what it communicates to you. Sometimes people say to me, they're like, I don't understand. I took mushrooms or I took LSD and all that happened was I was slapped by clowns or something. Like a bunch of clowns <laughs> came in. They, just, they were just slapping me and I couldn't stop laughing. And I was like, it's not what you see. LSD mushrooms, they show you that you are seeing with a mechanism of sight, of being. And it mm-hmm. plays with that mechanism. And by playing with it, it shows you that there is a mechanism. Does that make sense? Yeah. You don't have to see Jesus. You see that you are seeing anything. You see what sees. So we have something Alan Watts talks about. We have like a, a spotlight of awareness, right? Mm-hmm. And we point it around. That's why I joke in my stand-up specials. I'm like, check if you have to pee. That's a way that you can see your awareness <laughs> yeah. moving to your bladder. Meditation, mindfulness, contemplation, uh, and mushrooms are all a good way to get the light to point at itself. When mm-hmm. does what's looking look at itself? That's, that's, that's yeah. mysticism yeah. in a nutshell. And, and my, so my first mushroom experience wasn't overtly religious. It was only later that I looked back that I realized that it made me have an ineffable, meaning you can't talk about it, experience. And then that softened a rather calcified part of my brain that had written off the Bible. And it said, well, maybe the people that wrote the Bible were trying to communicate something that is also ineffable. Because if a a psychedelic experience is ineffable, it's very likely that a God experience is also ineffable. Hold on, my wife's coming in. Oh, sure. Hi, Mama. Hi, I didn't know if you were. Hi, Lee. It's okay. (laughs) Oh, hi, Lee. You want to see? Hi. Oh, hi. Hi, Hi, nice to meet you. Oh, you're fine. You're totally fine. (laughs) Hi. I'm my my daughter is uh, at my in-laws for the week, so I'm missing her. <laughs> oh, fine. oh, sweet. Yeah. I realized, buddy, beautiful. that we probably should wrap up. We've been an hour fifteen. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, it's okay. I'll, I'll send them out, and and we can close. Yeah, yeah. actually, that that'll be a nice uh, a nice little segue. <laughs> okay. I think. Actually, so I'll be in in fifteen or no so. No rush. Okay. Have fun. I love you. Bye, guys. I'll be right in. Bye. I love you. Yeah, it's okay. We we can ten fifteen is okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um, as someone who's sort of experienced this wide gamut of life and of being very open minded, and like something that comes across in all of your work is that you are genuinely pursuing these sort of questions, and it, it comes across in crashing, like and like it's very cathartic for folks like me who grew up in this sort of environment and. F- and felt that same sort of way to like see that mirrored back in your work. Yeah. And that, that, that means a lot. I really appreciate that, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, it really is just a very, very cathartic to have a, a comedian like you, an actor like you out there being very forthright about your experience in this world and also how you've, how you've gone about it and 
reckoned with it and been honest honest about it the entire way. Not well, I mean, not even not always being positive because like not everything's positive. Shit happens. Yeah. Um, but at least that I think people respond very much to your um, your openness. I was just with my with my sister in law and she she mentioned that. She actually wanted me to like thank you for like oh, when she sweet. when she sees your work, it makes her feel like she's not alone because she's from a similar environment, you know? Yeah. Um Yeah, yeah. Well thank her for me. That's very kind. <laughs> I will. Well the last question I I really have is like you do have this element of always wanting to find ways to ask these questions and, and a playfulness about asking them. You accept these metaphors here and some other ones from over there. What, as a new father, like, how do you think about that now that you're a parent and the sort of things that, that you want to pass on? Because I think that that's just a natural thing that sort of comes up as we age and if we decide to have children. Um, yeah. it's, it's something that that we just have to make at least some sort of decision about. So yeah. for yeah. you, um, how do you sort of approach that question for yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. So like you mentioned that your sister and you pick up on an openness, uh, but a genuineness, a genuine seeking in crashing, which is funny because crashing isn't necessarily overtly about those things. That's why I like that compliment so much. So similarly, I don't have any overt plans for my daughter because what she'll pick up on is hopefully what you guys are picking up on, which is the most alluring thing that a person can be, um, which is which is spaciousness and freedom. And that often leads to playfulness. Right. So this is why, um, you know, I think when Jesus is saying you, you need to be converted and become like little children, he's talking about a spacious quality. He's talking about a free quality and he's talking about a playful quality. Right. So when it, when it comes to like philosophies and ideas and all this sort of stuff, I'll, I'll be there to share that with my daughter when she wants to, if, if she ever wants to, but the main and most important thing I can do with her, even now in a pre-verbal place for her is cultivate a feeling of spaciousness, a quality of spaciousness inside, because mm. that's attractive. You know what I'm saying? It's not attractive that I, if I tell her how it is and explain it and there's this and there's that and that, and God said it, I believe it, that does it, like get in line, fuck off, all that stuff. <laughs> right. That's, that's not attractive. I love the stories of Jesus where people are crowding him and, and he has to get in a boat because there's a crowd so big that's somebody who's offering something greater than the sum of their words. I understand, by the way, I'm not directly comparing myself to Jesus. Anybody's blasphemy meters are going off. I'm just <laughs> saying, go and do likewise. There's a way to work on our hearts to become free, to become loving is another way to say it. To become spacious is another way of saying it. Right. That is attractive and learnable. That being said, I mean, we'll probably... You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we start with some pretty fundamental, you know, Christian leaning stories that right. will help her and guide her. Um, we'll have to see how that goes, because this is a little bit cheesy right now. It's a, it's could nothing is more true. She is the teaching and she is the teacher. And we're looking to her so much more for a pure, unencumbered message 
from the divine because she is pure being. She is, she isn't a story. Right. She, she doesn't have much of a false self. She doesn't have much of an ego. So she is a direct communication from God itself. And we're, we're spending most of our time listening to that and trying to have our hearts softened by that in the way that a sunset can do it, in the way that a piece of music can do it. She's not going to lecture to us or appeal to our intellects, but she is a teaching. And when you sit with her, I've sat with some great spiritual people. It's the same feeling. It's that feeling that we should all, and this is a good note to end on, we should all be trying to have that, sorry to sound hippie, but that vibration, that is yeah. appealing. That is beautiful. It's not about us and them, right and wrong, in or out, heaven or hell. It's about creating the kingdom of heaven here. The kingdom of heaven is here and men do not see it. That's what Jesus said. It's here and now. And when we get into that frequency, we can experience it. And, and even more importantly, we can share it with one another. Yeah. That's a really great sentiment, and I'm happy that, that we had this opportunity to talk. I feel like we could go on for a lot longer, but I want to obviously respect your time. Well, you saw the baby. I got to get that baby. That's right. Yeah. This is, our, this, is our last, <laughs> this is our last half hour before she goes to bed. So. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, man, then that's even uh, more precious time. So yes. um, I got to sit with the guru. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So your book is Comedy Sex God. I always like sort of envision different punctuations between there, yeah. like comedy, Flashes. sex. <laughs> I sort of regret not calling it comedy and sex and God, which would be kind of funny. But that's that's how it's intended. I'm not yeah. a comedy <laughs> sex God. <laughs> um, and your your show Crashing is, is available on HBO. Um, is yep. there anything else going on that, that you want to plug? Um, well, because it's up. a podcast, you mentioned uh, my podcast, which is called You Made It Weird. Mm -hmm. If you've ever wondered what um, any comedian, writer, actor, we've had almost 400 guests now. If you've ever wondered what they believe about God and, and life and love and truth, um, we always talk about it in the last hour. It's a long form podcast. Mm -hmm. So Gary Shandling, Sarah Silverman, um, Judd Apatow. I mean, Julia Sweeney, we've had some greats, Elizabeth Gilbert, Rob Bell, Richard Rohr, mm -hmm. uh, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Kumail Nanjiani. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's you have your list. There's there's you have your pick, rather. So if you want to hear those people joking around with me, talking about life and love, but then also we always talk about God. And that's probably interesting to the people of this podcast. Yeah. Check. You made it weird. Yep. Absolutely. I, I cannot recommend it enough. I, I love your show. Your episode with Reza Aslan is one of the like, oh, few, yeah. your few, one of the few sort of podcast episodes I've listened to multiple times. <laughs> He's, hey, um, that's a great. Yeah. It really helped me process uh, the oh, 2016 no. election. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And you know, what's another good one is uh, Alexander Shia. People oh, okay. might skip that one because he's not, he's not a name. But he breaks down how to read Semitic poetry metaphorically. He's a Christian, mm. but he explains it. He's a gay Christian from Alabama. He's incredible. And he breaks down how to read metaphor in a way that just cracked my brain straight open. Um, so that's a great one for listeners as well. Awesome. Pete, thank you so much for joining me. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed it too, man. Thanks for having me. And, and congrats on having uh, the best named podcast in the biz. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you for that okay. compliment. <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs>
yeah, tell your family I say hi and thanks for for letting me uh, have some of your your time this evening. I know that's. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. All right. Have a good evening. See you, dude. Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.